1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books and German Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Craig Servillo, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Melissa Kravitz about her excellent new book, Women Doctors in Weimar and Nazi Germany, Maternalism, Eugenics, and Professional Identity. Melissa, hello, and welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much, Craig.
1: Um, it, it's a pleasure to have you. Melissa, we like to always get started on the show by asking the author a little bit about themselves.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me. And I wanted to say that I am from Diamond Bar, California, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. And I did my BA work at UC Santa Barbara and my MA and PhD at the University of Maryland. I worked uh, with Jeffrey Herf at the University of Maryland. And now I teach European history and German history at Longwood University in Central Virginia. And I also teach classes in women, gender, and sexuality studies and also co-direct a minor at Longwood in Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies.
1: And um, how did you come to write this particular book?
0: I really first became interested in the topic through a class that I took my first year in graduate school on gender in the Americas, which is obviously way outside of the field of German history. And we had a unit on eugenics in the class. And In particular, we were focusing on women and how they were victims of the eugenics movement in the Americas, but also how they took it upon themselves to become agents and sort of control their own reproductive destinies. And the following year, I was doing an independent study with Tom Zeller, who was also a mentor of mine in graduate school. And I thought it would be interesting to write about how women doctors, that is women professionals fit into this, and how they had this kind of complicated position in the eugenics movement, being women themselves, but also becoming involved in it. Um, And through the independent study, I learned about the League of German Female Physicians and the journal that the organization published, known as Die Erzden, which was fortunately housed at the National Library of Medicine, very close to the University of Maryland. So I could work within the D.C. region at doing some kind of preliminary research before I actually got to Germany. And it turns out that the League of German Female Physicians and the Erdsten really became the basis for researching and writing my dissertation and then the book, um, the the topics and the themes that the journal focused on really provided a framework for the chapters of my book for me. So the five chapters are really based on issues that the women doctors were talking about in their journal.
1: And so this this book is a is stems from your dissertation though.
0: Yes, so the the very much so with the exception of The final chapter, which is a chapter on breast milk collection, that is the sort of brand new material that I researched in Germany between 2013 and 2015 after I finished my dissertation.
1: Well, thank you for that. Um, So let's jump right into your book. Um, You you already mentioned that there were five chapters and uh, we'll sort of um, do some questions, sort of one big one from each chapter um, to give the audience a, a flavor of your book. Um, and, and so let's begin with the first chapter, uh, which is about marriage counseling centers during the Weimar period. Um, can you explain to our listeners um, how they functioned, what their goals were, their ideology?
0: Sure. So during the Weimar Republic, there were basically three different types of marriage counseling centers that existed. There were municipal centers, private marriage counseling centers, and then religiously affiliated centers. And All of these centers were attempting to address the issue that existed during the Weimar period that population experts were sort of obsessed with, this idea that there was a crisis of marriage and there was a decline in fertility uh, after World War I. So the municipal centers, in particular in Prussia, were created specifically to provide counseling to couples who were planning to get married, Who would go to one of these centers, get an examination, and then the center would issue a marriage certificate based on their genetic health condition or based on the genetic health condition of the couple. Private sexual and marriage counseling centers actually predated the municipal centers, and they mostly were providing sex education and advice about sex and and advice about birth control. And then religiously affiliated centers, which were associated both with the Catholic and Protestant churches, opened really in an attempt to counteract the fact that they saw that both the municipal centers and private counseling centers were primarily focusing on passing out birth control. Now, no matter their intended purpose, all three types of the clinics became very involved in debates about the distribution of birth control. Especially to their primarily lower class clients or visitors. So, this is really an indication of how it is that the clinics were adapting to the needs of their advice seekers, the majority of whom were women. In some of the uh, annual reports from some of these clinics, perhaps between a half and two thirds of the advice seekers who were coming in were women. And they were searching for advice centered around birth control and centered around birth prevention and marriage problems and sexual questions. And so all three types of clinics really adapted to this need. And in all three types of clinics, there were women physician leaders who started to complain about the abilities of their lower class visitors to use birth control. And they spent a lot of time, encouraging them to use birth control, and even at times they sterilize some patients when they failed to use contraception properly. And so this is how they got involved in the eugenics movement through marriage counseling
1: centers. Um, I, if I can ask a follow-up, um, when they sterilized patients, did they do this with their knowledge or no?
0: Yes. And this is really kind of in a rare case where there's these two doctors in a municipal clinic who are doing this. Uh, but there are other doctors who become involved in the conversation about sterilization, including, for example, in in religiously affiliated centers. So, for example, there's a doctor, Ilse Sagun, who plays a kind of prominent role all throughout the book because she's working in both the Weimar period and the Nazi period. And she worked in a Protestant marriage counseling center in, in Berlin. And she became very concerned about her lower class patients who were unable to use contraception properly. And she would talk about how they became pregnant over and over again. And she even claimed that many of the visitors who came to the marriage counseling center in Friedenau in Berlin wouldn't ask for birth control until the situation became so dire. And so Sagoon is one of the doctors who tended to support eugenic measures. So she didn't sterilize patients, but she certainly advised women to have abortions. She pushed birth control on them. She held extra advising sessions to encourage them, encourage women who had medical or economic problems to use birth control. Um, So this was a way for her to kind of regulate her patients, but also help them. So, like, on the one hand, she sees the hardships faced by poor women with too many children, and she wants to alleviate their problems and comply with their requests. On the other hand, she's also, this is also a way for her to regulate the number and the quality of individuals in society, especially those who were deemed to be, quote, a, quote, unquote, asocial, um, or, or, or I should say, those who had sort of asocial elements that, that many in the Weimar period saw as, as uh, the lower class embodying a lot of these asocial elements like a- alcoholism and criminality and prostitution, which I talk about in a later chapter.
1: Uh, you mentioned the three types of marriage counseling centers, and I, I'm interested just in a little bit more on the, on the religious centers. How did they handle the birth control issue differently? if at all?
0: So it, interestingly, they get in, uh, they actually hold a lot of sort of meetings and discussions about whether or not they should be distributing birth control. So they issue this decree that basically talks about how they should be, you know, sort of setting up guidelines about whether or not they should be distributing birth control. But again, all the while that they're continuously. Trying to determine whether or not the 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 centers and in particular the Protestant centers are the ones that I looked at whether or not they're supposed to be distributing birth control all the while that they're trying to determine whether or not they're supposed to do that they're actually doing it
1: you you've talked about how these places have been, were used primarily by the by the lower classes um where do the middle and upper class people go if anywhere were they just because they were in those classes sort of were more comfortable with birth control or had private doctors or
0: So I would I would say that the lower classes are definitely primarily visiting the municipal centers the ones that are sort of available to them and there are five women doctors who run municipal centers in Berlin um and then in the the middle and upper class classes do tend to show up you know sometimes at religiously affiliated centers even at the private marriage and sexual counseling centers. Um, And sometimes they generally had more access to birth control through sort of private doctors, private connections. I think a lot of what I see in the book is that there is this kind of focus on class because when they become involved in distributing birth control, A lot of what the conversation is focused on is how some of these women experience other sort of problems. Like, like I said, they have alcoholism within the family or they have criminality within the family and they really want to alleviate all of these problems, like I said, for the women themselves and then also for society as a whole.
1: Yeah, so they, they sort of saw this as a benevolent mission for the most sure. part. Sure. Yeah. yeah.
0: I think, you know, that's one of the things that I, you know, want people to understand about these women doctors is that they were really complicated individuals, like, had these really complicated positions where they, I think, for the most part, saw what they were doing as good. Um, they were also in this very overcrowded, very discriminatory medical profession. And so they were trying to carve professional spaces for themselves. And so they could use arguments such as trust, like women women patients are, are going to come to marriage counseling centers if there's a women doctor on staff, because they would be more apt to open up to them and trust them. And they use this argument a lot when they're talking about marriage counseling centers. And then later in chapter three, I talk about venereal disease counseling centers. So I would say for the most part, they're trying to do good for their patients, but they're also opportunistic. They're trying to do good for themselves as well.
1: Because uh, I, I imagine that in this period, that women being able to be doctors and hold these roles is sort of a new opportunity for women.
0: Yes. We're talking about basically the first generation of doctors because women weren't admitted into medical school until the first decade of the 20th century. So they're admitted on a state-by-state basis between 1901 and 1910. And the first generation of women really comes to be doctors really in the 19-teens. And then you know, they form this professional organization essentially almost right after World War II. It for, the professional World War One, excuse me, the professional organization forms in 1924. Um, but basically they're trying to form this professional organization and they establish a journal because they find that they've been pushed out of the very elite positions in Germany, which were the health insurance practice practices, they've really kind of been pushed out of those jobs. Um, and then later on, the Weimar government will pass the double earner law, which allow uh, basically states that any civil servants who are double earners uh, have to leave their jobs. And so that also pushes a lot of women doctors who were often partnered with their spouses out of the profession as well.
1: And, and now the religious centers... Aside, it, it's obvious who who runs and funds those. But the the other two uh, categories are are those mostly state funded.
0: So the municipal centers are state funded in the in the state of Prussia. They're only established in the state of Prussia, and then the private centers. So, for example, Magnus Hirschfeld has uh a, a, I mean, famously has a kind of sexual counseling center attached to his institute for sexual uh, for sexual science. Um, that is part of, so it's part of that. So that opens in 1919. So that's, again, part of who's funding these centers, are sort of uh, individuals and doctors, psychologists, people who are interested in these questions of eugenics, sex, sexuality, sexology.
1: Well, thank you for that. Um, We'll move on to the next um, sort of section. Um, A very similar question. On your second chapter, you talk about physical education programs for girls. Um, Can you you describe what those were like in the Weimar period? what, What were their goals?
0: Sure. So in the second chapter, I do focus on the really the creation of physical education programs, specifically in Germany's vocational schools during the Weimar era um and during the Weimar era there was a major focus on sort of strength, strengthening the nation's youth and a lot of this comes in light of the losses the failures the disappointments of the first world war so in the early years of the Weimar Republic the government passes a national youth welfare law and this is again couched in the context of Germany's national crisis and kind of rebuilding campaign The law established basic rights of children, determined the role of, and and also determined the role of public welfare to intervene in the interests of the child when the family could not adequately provide an education. So the law becomes effective in 1924, and this is one of a number of measures focused on the nation's youth. And so pushing physical education programs in schools sort of falls in, this, in line with this idea that uh, the state or is supposed to be providing some type of public welfare for children. But in addition to that, you also have things like the League of German Women's Associations partners with the German National Committee for Physical Exercise, and they organize this big conference in 1925 on the, conference, or, or on the physical education of women. So what these physical education programs became about for women doctors was trying for them trying to push a physical education program for girls that was separate from boys, but that was equal, Um, meaning that they wanted a physical education program that had equal attention, equal facilities, equal funding to... Programs that already existed for boys, but they wanted girls' programs to focus on their separate bodies and abilities or to be catered around their bodies and abilities. And it turns out that a lot of what these programs focused on was trying to prepare women for their roles to become mothers. So a lot of the programs are focused around on preparing women for not only childbirth but also for motherhood. Uh, so they propose physical education programs that are focused, for example, entirely around strengthening women's muscles for the birthing process. So one doctor, who Dr. Hermine uh, Heusler-Edenhuizen, who who is the first president of the League of German Female Physicians, she's. Present at the nineteen twenty-five conference, and she also writes quite a bit in Dearborn about these physical physical education programs, and so she starts to propose a program that focuses on strengthening stomach mat- muscles, back muscles, uh, perineum muscles. So they wanted uh, these these programs to again really try to prepare women for motherhood. But they also wanted programs that sort of center the needs of women. So a lot of the conversation turns to whether or not uh, women should be exercising while menstruating. So they take this question up. They talk about it quite a bit. They recommend certain exercises that they should be doing while menstruating. So this was a way for them, again, to sort of center women's needs. And in particular, they're working with adolescent women who are experiencing menstruation for the first time and sort of making it a central component of physical education programs.
1: Yeah, I, I did want to ask, um, when, when did it start um, for girls? Is that when it normally started?
0: The programs, yeah, so they basically are recommending that in elementary schools it's acceptable for boys and girls to have physical education, you know, with a kind of a common program. But they really want to see a type of separate program starting in the vocational schools, which most uh, Germans would start. You know, sort of in their adolescent years, say, uh, you know, between the ages of 12 and 14. Um, the vocational schools in particular are the alternative to the more elite gymnasium in Germany, which feed into the universities. And so the other thing to note about the vocational schools is, of course, that because the students coming into the vocational schools are going into a trade or presumably going into a trade. A lot of them are also coming from the lower classes.
1: Was, was this, these kinds of programs, something that was not done in the, in the, in the more elite high schools because those people were more, had better access to, um, healthcare and physicians and, uh, you know, were members of the upper class.
0: So- So the doctors who I look at are not necessarily working in the gymnasium so far as I can tell, nor are they focused on conversations within the gymnasium. Um, I mean, I assume that there might be some type of physical education program, but I don't think that the because they were feeding into the universities, there's as much of a focus on, again, sort of preparing these students who are going into a trade and then some of a lot of whom would may also become mothers, uh, you know, trying to, to center their needs in a physical education program.
1: Sure. Uh, you've mentioned a couple of times about, um, training these girls to be fit mothers. Mm -hmm. Um, what, what did that mean for these doctors? Um, I mean, you've mentioned the physical, um, component. It was there like a mental health component or, um, teaching them good habits or, Things like that was that part of this training, part of these yeah, classes?
0: Definitely, uh, one of the th- one of the issues that a lot of these female doctors have with, uh, especially the mothers of the children who they're educating, is that they see that they're not always adequately training their children or training is probably not the right word, but educating their children in matters of sex, in matters of health, in matters of hygiene. So they want to be the ones in the school who are going to be taking on this role, that they're going to uh, set a good example for mothers to do this. So in many ways, these doctors recognize that kind of mothers are failing to do this in the home. And so they call for schools to be staffed with physicians who are going to be able to help out in this regard.
1: Okay. Yeah. Th- th- yeah. Thank you for clarifying. It was, uh, I-, I think this getting to the heart of their like mission is, is important for your book. Um, so let's, let's move on to the next topic and talk about vices, um, I I was fascinated by this chapter. Um, What were some of the common societal problems that these female doctors were were trying to combat?
0: Sure. So the next chapter focuses primarily on their work in the anti-alcohol campaign. And in addition to that, the anti-venereal disease, anti-prostitution campaigns, which really become kind of one in the same or very much linked.
1: And um, we can talk about them separately one at a time. Um, let's start with alcohol.
0: One of, one of the, I guess I should say, like before we talk about them separately, as a whole, they're really trying to get involved in these movements or campaigns against these quote unquote vices because they see that these vices are causing harm to women, to children, and to the home. So um, they're using their maternal rhetoric to attack the problems, to kind of underline the upheaval that these vices cause to women's lives and cause to domestic spaces. And at the same time, they're always trying to kind of carve out a new professional domain for themselves in, in these newish fields um so in in terms of the anti-alcohol crusade which we're not even talking about a lot of women who are involved um you know i think at one point i talk about how there's maybe like 12 doctors total who are kind of involved in this campaign and one of the things that dr agnes bloom who's a german a famous german eugenicist tries to emphasize is that she wants even more women to get involved in the campaign. But when they get involved in the anti-alcohol campaign, they're especially trying to intervene, um, again, when it comes to how alcohol can affect women. So they try to, for example, make recommendations for how much alcohol consumption was appropriate for nursing mothers. So this is precisely what Dr. Agnes Bloom starts to talk about. Um, She thought women should abstain from any alcohol consumption while pregnant. Um, and Bloom, also being a eugenicist, saw this something like alcoholism that was especially damaging to a class that she referred to as "quote unquote" the civilized people. So she's in a way really trying to protect particular members of the population, namely the upper ca- upper classes, from the harms of alcohol that she saw spreading among the underclasses. And then in the campaigns against venereal disease and prostitution. So this becomes a, a, a large question after world war one. And there's lots of attempts to kind of estimate the number of people who are suffering from venereal disease and often these numbers are very much overinflated, um, but when they get involved in the campaign against prostitution and venereal disease, they have a little bit of a discussion about whether or not prostitution should be something that is regulated, um, meaning, you know, that they should have uh, sort of certain areas where prostitutes live or homes, and whether or not they should be forced to have um, checkups or be checked regularly for venereal disease. But mostly what they're talking about is these newly opened venereal disease clinics that open to attempt to kind of control this problem that, again, is very much overinflated. And so they these doctors propose that they can help out in the treatment of venereal disease because a woman who shows up in one of these clinics to get checked might be very embarrassed and might be very reluctant to visit a clinic and especially to see a male doctor. And so if there's a female doctor on staff, they thought women would be much more uh, trusting of these women and much more willing to come into the clinic to get checked and also to, to to trust women to treat and examine them. So like I said, this is not all that different from the arguments that they're making for their employment in marriage counseling centers during the Weimar era. It very much echoes that same kind of language.
1: Uh, overall, did you get a sense at how successful these programs were?
0: So it's, it's difficult to determine how successful they are for the populations who they're servicing, I guess. I think that I guess I could talk about how successful women physicians are at at sort of inserting themselves into into the campaigns. Like I said, there's always this push in the anti-alcohol crusade to try to get more women involved. But I think in terms of the success in venereal disease clinics, um, there are certain states that pass mandates that a female physician has to be on staff for treating female patients in VD clinics. And so that's a way that they, the women doctors themselves, would see this as a success for their their kind of, again, trying to carve professional space for themselves, them trying to make space for themselves in the profession.
1: And so do you see through the Weimar period then a steady growth in the number of women who get into these professions because they, these, as you just mentioned, the opportunities are sort of emerging and opening up.
0: Yes. I definitely think that, uh, if you look at the numbers, I mean, we're not talking about that many doctors overall, uh, when the league of German female physicians is founded in 1924, there's around 4,000 doctors. Um, But their numbers very much increase, um, you know, up to to 12,000 by 1941. So you do see kind of steady growth, not only in the Weimar period, but also in the Nazi era as well. And I think that a lot of this has to do with both the founding of this professional organization, the push made, that they want doctors moving into various new fields, but also the attention that the Weimar regime and then later the Nazi regime are paying to women's and children's health. And that's the claim that these women are making, is that they are the, the advocates for women's and children's health, or they're the experts in women's children's health. And so they're the ones who should be employed in these spaces, helping these women and children. So because the regimes are paying a lot of attention to women's and children's health, there's also more opportunities for women as well.
1: I want to move on to the to the Nazi period in the next question. But before I do, I just want to ask one more question about these doctors. Um, are they coming from certain areas of the country, certain schools, um, certain cities, um, or are they just, or is it spread out?
0: It's definitely spread out. You do see uh, a lot of the conversations about marriage counseling centers are happening in Berlin because they have a large number of municipal centers because of the state of Prussia's ordinance that they pass. Um, but when it comes to breast milk collection, I mean, it moves to a totally different area of Germany that's really focused on uh, central Germany, Erfurt and, uh, and um Magdeburg initially. So I think that they really are coming from all over. They're coming from different universities. A lot of them come from upper classes. A lot of them had spouses who also worked in medicine or perhaps fathers who worked in the medical field.
1: Okay. Yeah. I just, uh, yeah, I was just curious about that. just popped into my head as we were, as you were explaining the doctors. Um, okay. Let's, let's move to the next uh, chapter and and move to the Nazi period. And, um, and Discuss uh, racial hygiene training, um, what it is, um, and, and sort of give us a flavor of what the BDA is. Uh, um, something that a lot of our listeners are probably not real familiar with.
0: So, the BDA is the League of German Female Physicians, what I've been talking about. Uh, that's the kind of acronym for their organization, the Bund Deutsche Ärztinnen. Um, I think you probably mean the BDM, the Bund Deutscher Mädels. Oh, so
1: yes, yes. Sorry, yeah. my my apologies.
0: <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, so the Bund Deutscher Mädels is the female equivalent of the Hitler Youth. It's called the League of German Girls, um, and the League of German Girls uh, is set up to, I mean, and it's made mandatory after nineteen thirty six for all youth. And there's kind of three different. Um, Levels, if you will of of the organization um there's young middles that is like younger girls, there's middles, sort of girls who are in their adolescence uh and then there are older girls um there are older girls who are part of oh, the name is escaping me right now. I'll have to come back to that um But what what the League of German Girls is focused on is very similar to the Hitler Youth, is kind of indoctrination. Um, So membership of the League of German Girls is open to those girls who are deemed physically and mentally fit. So they would take a kind of medical examination before they came in. And female doctors made the argument that they should be working with the organization to kind of quickly examine a girl and perhaps easily exclude a girl if a doctor considered them racially inferior just by looking at them, by looking, for example, at their skull and their facial structure. Um, But the League of German Girls was also focused on things like building camaraderie, um, indoctrinating young girls to Nazi ideas of racial hygiene, educating girls in matters of biology and health. Um, So they would kind of go on hikes. They would sing songs together. Um, The female physicians become involved in the League of German Girls, especially because they make the case that they can carry out these routine medical exams, but also they say that they can build camaraderie, they can indoctrinate young girls, they can educate them, especially in these matters of sex, biology, and health. They also hold these mother evenings in which they try to gain the trust of the mothers of the girls who are entrusted to them. Um, And again, it's during these mother evenings that they it becomes kind of glaringly obvious to them how little the mothers were doing with regards to health education and hygiene of their girls, which is why the doctors feel that it's necessary for them to intervene. So again, this very much echoes the intervention that they're trying to make in school health education programs in the Weimar era. They're pointing out the deficiencies of mothers, both during the Weimar era and then again during the Nazi era. And Female physicians think that they're very uh, uh, adequate, I mean, more than adequate, that they're suitable for these types of jobs because they've also attended this racial hygiene training camp that is set up starting in 1935. This is a camp that's set up in Mecklenburg in northern Germany on the on the Tollenzese. And basically, groups of doctors would visit this camp. And the whole point was to become indoctrinated in racial hygiene. So female physicians were among the groups who visited this camp, and part of their indoctrination was more direct, like would come from lectures about racial hygiene from representatives from the racial political office, from the Hitler Youth, offices for people's health and public welfare, and part of the indoctrination at this racial hygiene training camp was also kind of indirect. They, they would encourage doctors who attended the training camp to sort of appreciate the land, uh, to build camaraderie with the strangers who they were sharing dorm rooms with, to wear the same uniform. And so they could then translate these types of or this type of training back to their work in the League of German Girls. So a lot of what they were doing in the League of German Girls was these same types of things. Um, So they would wear the same uniform as the girl. They would wear matching uniforms. They would sing songs with the girls. They would take them on hikes. They would participate as much as possible in the activities that the girls did.
1: Was, Was there any resistance from the Nazi state at first to employ these women doctors in these roles, or did they embrace that early on?
0: So they definitely see that the doctors is very fit for tr- for working in the League of German Girls and in something called the Reich's Mother Service. I mean, I think the resistance to women doctors overall comes in them sort of doubling down on the double, double for Diener law, the double earner law that the Weimar State had passed, again, trying to push women who were double earners, who were civil servants, which doctors were in Germany or are in Germany, out of the profession, and also trying to limit the numbers of women who were in medical school. But I think a lot of this is early rhetoric that very much, I mean, changes because there's so much focus on women and children under the Nazi regime, but also has to change after the war starts.
1: Sure. Um, And just a question about uh generations it, did the the sort of older female doctors who've been doing this for a while um approach the nazi period and their sort of role in in racial hygiene differently than the younger doctors or was there sort of you know what's the word i'm looking for was there sort of uh similarities in the way that they looked at it or do they have approached it differently or
0: Sure. So I think uh, one thing to to point out is that there's um, not so much as a generational change, but there's a coordination that ha- happens for the League of German Female Physicians. So there's a purge of Jewish female physicians, which made up about a third of the organization. That ha- This happens right away in April of 1933. Um, so you do see a more... Um, An an organization that right away starts to kind of fall in line with the Nazi regime. But in addition to that, yeah, most of the new leadership of the League of German Female Physicians had been trained in the very late Weimar era, or even if they're the later leadership, they'd been trained under the Nazi regime in the early years. So they're really part now of a second generation of doctors, if you will, and... I think they have a different mindset overall. They didn't necessarily have to fight for their entrance into the profession. They've benefited from the fact that the League of German Female Physicians has been around now for 10 plus years. They have this journal that's been established. Um, But yeah, I think that they certainly were more willing to make medicine ideological and they were more willing to fall in line. And if they weren't, they weren't going to last very long in the organization.
1: Sure. 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 Yeah. No, that, that makes sense. Um, During, during the Nazi period, did you, you've mentioned that, you know, it sort of became more important to the state, particularly after the war. Um, And you mentioned some numbers of doctors, how they grew from 4,000 to 12,000 in the previous period. Did we get another spike in females becoming doctors, or was it more of a, like a slow trickle?
0: Yeah. I mean, like I said, it was more of a slow trickle. And I think um, I probably overestimated the numbers for when the profession is founded, like in 1924, 1925, you're talking more about like 2,500 doctors. By the end of the Weimar period, you're talking about that 4,000, you know, so around 1933, it's about 4,000. And so then you see a kind of more of a trickle. As I said, you get to about 12,000 after 1941, 42, um, or even a little bit less than that, probably more like 10,000. Uh, and if you look at their numbers, like, you know, right when the war starting, it's about 6,000. So it is kind of just this trickle. And so, again, we're not talking about all that many doctors. I mean, I think in the in the last year that I calculated, the numbers was 1942, which I guess is when you're talking about kind of total war and they were make, they were making up about 12.4% of the population at that point um, whereas before they made up about 5% of the population when they first started the organization so you know a little bit of an increase but it it is more of a slow trickle
1: sure okay yeah um okay um uh, let's let's move on to the fifth chapter um and and discuss infant nutrition um in particular the breast milk collection centers and do you I know you mentioned these a little bit in the beginning of the interview, but uh should probably discuss them more fully. Um, I mean, their name sort of speaks to themselves, but uh, explain how it worked um, and what was their original purpose in, in founding then?
0: Sure. So uh, the first breast milk collection facility, which is founded by Dr. Marie Elise Kaiser, who is featured prominently in this chapter. She's also the photo on the front of the book. Um, So she starts the first facility in Germany, which um, really becomes a model for all the other facilities in Germany, in Europe. I mean, in many ways, she builds kind of an international network. And the whole point of the facility that she starts in Magdeburg um, in 1919 is to collect breast milk from women who produce a surplus of it and then to redistribute it to sick, weak, or premature infants. Um, So it's really only to women who medically needed it, um, or I should say to infants who medically needed it. At times, it would sometimes be redistributed to women who didn't produce enough breast milk. So she opens this first facility, which failed um, because of the recession. But then she opened another facility in Erfurt, Germany, which is, I talked a little bit earlier about how the conversation around breast milk collection is really focused in Erfurt. And I spent a lot of time in the Erfurt City Archive doing research for this chapter. And the Erfurt facility, which opens around the same time that the League of German Female Physicians is being founded, It essentially becomes the kind of training facility for all the other facilities. So she establishes kind of a protocol for what these centers are going to do, how they're going to examine the milk, how they're going to collect the milk. Um, And then when the Nazis come to power, she... Uh, solicits the support of the regime. She writes to them. She even at one point highlights the fact that she's Aryan and that her husband's Aryan. Um, And the Nazis eventually do get behind her her breast milk, this this idea for breast milk collection. Uh, By the end of the war, there are 44 clinics overall in the German Reich. Um, They take over the supervision and regulation of the clinics after 1936 the nazi reich working group for mother and child takes over the supervision of it they also drew up guidelines for the establishment and operation of breast milk collection facilities which kaiser dr maria elise kaiser helps write Um, and a lot of these clinics were already attached to women's hospitals For example, the one in Magdeburg, the one in Erfurt. So there's obviously a lot of women who are already existing in hospitals, but they see this as a way of getting a a flow of women or free flow of women, if you will. So while there's other things going on at the hospitals, they can also establish these breast milk collection facilities to kind of focus solely on this this collection and, and redistribution of breast milk.
1: Uh, and you mentioned that we're uh, for over forty facilities by by the end
0: yeah forty four facilities by the end
1: um and um were they all staffed and run by doctors um nurses um yeah so they-
0: some of them are staffed by nurses, some of them are staffed by doctors. there's only really a couple women doctors who are running um facilities on their own um so the the reason that the chapter focuses a lot on Dr. Maria Elise Kaiser is not only because she's running the facility in Erfurt. I mean initially she opens it alongside her husband, but she then becomes as I said the kind of go-to um I mean she becomes an expert if you will. Not only do the other female physicians praise her as the expert, but they also uh, you know, the the Nazi regime is essentially kind of employing her to, um, to uh, write these guidelines and help them kind of determine how they should train other doctors. They write to her asking her to train doctors or let doctors from other countries see the facility in Erfurt. There is another doctor, Dr. Irma Feldwig, who's running a facility as well um, in central Germany, in Forsheim. Um, so, but, but yeah, you have like male doctors who also become involved with this. There's a Dr. Friedrich Eckart also plays a role in this chapter. Um, he's also running a facility. But a lot of what these doctors are doing is they're corresponding with Kaiser, figuring out, you know, kind of. What they should do, for example, when they when you know they get a supply of Jewish milk in the facility, or uh, talking to her about how much or writing to her about how much they've helped her with the opening of their own facilities.
1: Um, Did these facilities serve any sort of dual purposes, or was it this was what they were doing?
0: Yeah, this is primarily what they're doing. Like I said, they're attached to hospitals, which are of course like you know, attached to women's hospitals, which are primarily where women are giving birth and learning to breastfeed. But for the most part, this is what they're doing.
1: Um, Okay. uh, We're coming up in about 50 minutes now. Um, So let me, um, as a way to wrap up discussion of your book, um, can you give the the audience listening and um, maybe people who will go and read your book, one or two things that you would really like them to take away from it? Um, Sort of big things that uh, you've hoped to accomplish with it.
0: Sure. So I definitely, I mean, and I alluded to this earlier, but I think I went into this project, um, I mean, very early on when I was a young dissertation student, assuming that these women had certain motivations that were only uh, about kind of themselves. And I guess I want listeners to sort of take away the idea that these women doctors were very complex people and they had very, Complex motivations for doing the things that they did. Um, They were carving out spaces within women's and children's medicine, and they had various motivations for doing that. So, I mean, at times they're simply, again, focused on themselves. They're trying to make room for themselves within this overcrowded, discriminatory medical profession. Sometimes they were doing that on the backs of their lower class patients, but they were also motivated by the this kind of more benevolent idea that they could help their patients and, and the women and children they were servicing. So they were becoming political, educational, social leaders and advocates for their patients and stu- students. I mean, for example, um, Dr. Ilsa Sagoon, who I said plays a strong role all throughout the book. I mean, she starts to advocate for nursing mothers who the Nazi regime wants to get them back to work as quickly as possible, especially after the war starts, to have nursing breaks and to have separate nursing rooms. Um, and although, you know, that that doesn't necessarily come to fruition, when you see that, that's very much the, her being an advocate for her patients. Um, but at other times, they're also opportunists, or you could call them strategic. I mean, they do ally themselves with the Nazi regime because they know that the the Nazi regime is paying a lot of attention to women and children and that that could benefit them. So I think about someone like Maria Lise Kaiser. I mean, she essentially turns herself into an expert for the very new field of breast milk collection. So she's not only carved a space for herself in medicine, but she also does ally with the regime, knowing that if she can get approval and funding from the regime, she can also help so many more mothers and infants who are in need of breast milk for their babies. So that's a really complicated position because she's not only motivated by her own sort of professional goals, she's also motivated by helping her patients and she's also an opportunist. Um, And I think secondly, this is not something that I wrote about at all, like in the conclusion of the book, but it's something that I've thought about more in hindsight, especially because as I was finishing the book and uh, reading the page proofs of the book, it was when I was pregnant myself. And when I was becoming a mother myself, um, I actually read the page proofs of the book in the eight weeks or so after I gave birth. And so I I thought a lot about how these women doctors spend a lot of their time and energy on women and especially on sort of women's roles as mothers, or they're trying to make interventions when it comes to women as mothers or preparing them for women for motherhood, for example, in physical education programs. Um, and I started thinking about okay, I mean, medicine has come a long way since then, and we know a lot more about about you know becoming a mother and expertise has changed certainly but not that much has changed in this regard i i think about the things that i was learning in childbirth class and the things that happened after i became a mother and i think a lot about these women doctors and how they really knew what they were talking about i mean they spend all this time talking about girls physical education programs and how they should focus on preparing these specific muscles for childbirth. And again, this is not all that different than the childbirth classes I took. Or they obsess over breast milk being best for the baby. And again, that's not all that different from the rhetoric that you hear today. And you spend countless hours with lactation consultants. And I mean, the lactation consultant, right, is very much like the embodiment of a kind of expert position that primarily women have today that very much stems from this idea of kind of breast milk collection or focusing on, on breastfeeding. And I think about these women are uh, pioneers in that regard of kind of creating professional spaces for women.
1: Well, I want to thank you for sharing your personal story uh, with us. Um, I think it's, it gives listeners a little more context of, um, what's important about your book. Um, I want to ask you before we wrap up, uh, one final question. Um, Now that this book is done and it's on the shelves and people can buy it, um, what are you working on now?
0: So I have totally switched gears um, and I'm actually working on a family history of Gerhard Seeger, who was a member of the Social Democratic Party. He was also a member of the Reichstag. He had been a five term member of the Reichstag, and the last time he was elected to the Reichstag was March 5th, in the March 5th, 1933 election, so shortly after Hitler became chancellor. Um, so he was imprisoned a week later, like many, or arrested a week later, like many social democrats. And he was imprisoned in Oranienburg, in which later became Sachsenhausen. Um, he escaped he made his way to England. He writes a book. He helped get his wife and daughter who were also held hostage out of Germany. He went on an anti-fascist speaking tour in the United States in 1934 and eventually immigrated to the U.S. Or he went on an anti-fascist speaking tour in the U.S. and then eventually immigrated there. So mostly what I'm working on is that his wife has written a history of his life and I'm trying to publish that. And it, I have access to all of the the family, the family's papers and their personal papers. And it's a great project for me to do at home while I am also uh, a mother now. So (laughs) less time in Germany, more time at home.
1: Well, it it sounds fascinating (laughs) and uh, no rush, but uh, when you, when you get it done, um, we'd love to have you back on the show to talk about it.
0: Great. Thank you so much.
1: I want to thank Dr. Kravitz again. I can't recommend her book enough. Uh, It's excellent. And I may give you the title again. It's, It's Women Doctors in Weimar and Nazi Germany, Maternalism, Eugenics, and Professional Identity. And we will see you all next time.